This is London Calling. You are listening to Thought and Leaders. Hello, 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 and welcome again to another global podcast that is Thought and Leaders. As you know, I scour this beautiful, magnificent, exciting, dynamic world to find the most interesting, the most intriguing speakers, leaders indeed, out there. And this week is absolutely no exception to that one golden rule. And her name is Linda, Linda Cruz. Hello, Linda. Hello, Jonathan. Lovely of you to join us here today. You are really quite far away. You are in beautiful, delicious Dubai. I am currently. This is not normally the place, the sort of place I would be in, Jonathan. But I am here in transit. I'm heading east. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Where, Where are you heading to? Ultimately, Japan. Nice. Via some of the countries that I work in, and that is India, China, Philippines. Yeah. Give us a little bit of a elevator pitch about yourself. So I am a frontline humanitarian worker and leadership expert, and I'm an author. I've written two books. Right. I started my career... Uh, 21 years ago, actually, on the front line. Let's go back to when you were a kid. Family, what did mum and dad do? Uh, Dad, um, an executive in British Telecom. Mum, a school secretary. I read somewhere, rather, that someone in the family was involved with magic. Absolutely. I'm actually fourth-generation magician. So father, grandfather and great-grandfather, all amateur, of course. But it's been a passion. And even my grandchildren now are into magic. (laughs) What is it about magic that has held the family so long? It brings joy, smiles, happiness, curiosity. Mm. I always find it's a great icebreaker to pull out a effective magic trick, especially if it's something to do with mind reading. Yes, I agree. And of course, for me as a frontline worker... You don't need language. Yeah, exactly. I'm with children who perhaps are a little bit unsure of who I am. Yeah. And they don't speak English. Mm. And so I will literally get out some magic straight away. And any uncertainty disappears as they just gather around me. And and you don't need language. Yeah. And it's very interesting, Jonathan, because two people that I've worked and have supported me in various ways over my career, Sir Richard Branson and Prince Charles, are also both magicians. We're going to get into that in just a second when we go a little bit further down this road of yours in terms of your journey. There was a pivotal moment, wasn't there? Were you driving or something happened to you? Correct. My first career, I was a nurse, which I loved. I then became a single mother at a very young age with two children. I was determined for them to still have everything they possibly needed So I actually took a job in sales 
to ensure I had good salary. But actually, it was a job that I absolutely hated. And the stress levels were really building up and up. And of course, as many mothers know, you sort of put those feelings to one side because you know that you're doing it for a purpose. I did notice that I was crying myself to sleep or drinking a bit more wine, but the stress was building up until that one night when I was driving home on a dark winter's night from Peterborough to Bristol and stabbing pains behind the eyes, curtains came down and I lost my sight. So you you parked the car, what happened? It was that terrifying moment of not being able to see and, of course, thinking that was it and I would never see again. And it was before the time of mobile phones or anything like that. So I was literally alone and petrified and wondering, literally thinking my life was over. I'd never work again, never see my children again. And, you know, that whole process you go through when you've had such a horrible shock. Yeah, I know. I then went to the cry of the soul and it was, if my sight comes back, I promise I will find what I was born to do. And it was a prayer. After the two hours, what did you do? Uh, the next day, go to a doctor or something? Correct. And it was diagnosed as stress blindness or hysterical blindness. Really? And as I tell my story, Jonathan, many people say, oh, yeah, I've had it or I've heard of it. I'd never heard of it. Um, but it was literally the stress that pushed me over the top. Do you think it was the stress of expectations that you put on yourself because of the kids or was it the stress of sales driven managers and that sort of thing? So it wasn't the stress of the children. It was the stress of a job and I was a nurse. So at that time for me, it was, you know, to be in this sort of very hard sales job was very difficult. It was just not part of my character whatsoever. So what brought you to the sales job if you were a nurse? Was it with the money? It, yes, totally, 100%. Because as a nurse at that time, the salary was not good enough. Of course, yeah. And also, of course, the shifts are antisocial. You're, like, you're doing lates, earlies, night shift as a nurse. And I, I couldn't do that as a single parent. The difference between nursing where you're giving care and sales, where you're just making a deal and it's, you know, you're judged by, did you make the deal or not? That, that must've been pretty hard. It was, and it was medical sales as well. So I was, I'd sort of encountered that world through my nursing, but I was always on the other side of it. And, and it just didn't sit with me well at all. You had already made in your mind's eye prayer to the soul. You've offered up this prayer. So what happens next that makes you go to the next stage? My children were still dependent on me. So there was nothing that I could do immediately to fulfill what I believed was the reason I was born. But I had in mind what it was going to be. And I knew that I had probably two years to actually start to change the one thing that I had total control of. And that was myself. And so what I did was started to analyze the sort of person I had become and just listening to myself on phone calls and conversations with friends, I'd become a very miserable, unhappy person. And so the first thing I did, and I involved my children in this, was we need to sort of change the way we think, the way we converse, 
and to mind our language. So I remember very clearly saying to my two teenage children, there's three words we're going to stop saying, and that's no, not, and don't. And every time we do, we'll put a pound in the swear box. Very good. Very good. Yeah. We had a good holiday that year, Jonathan. Very good. (laughs) But it was great training because what I'd realised, for example, I would listen to the news. And of course, then I would regurgitate all of the doom and gloom to anyone who would listen to it. So me and the children made this promise. We would turn off the news and put on dance music. You know, we would stop ourselves really taking on all the negativity and then repeating it. So it was really taking charge of language, thought, and the energy of negativity and trying to turn it into positivity. You know, you get these people who say, oh, you've got to be positive, you've got to be positive. Surely you need to be realistic as well. For me, because I was so in the depths of negativity, right, and really couldn't utter um, even the slightest... Uh, well-being words, I knew that I had to do a big shift to start with to kick myself out of it. Do you think that in a way you had been punishing yourself, all this negativity with some sort of self-administered kind of punishment? My happiness was in my home with my children. But as soon as I got in the car to do my work, I didn't find any joy in the number of hours that I was at work. Were you kind of cynical about the world? That was part of it. And I wasn't good at sort of compartmentalizing myself from my work Uh because, of course, I could have just thought, well, I've ticked that big money box and I'm fine, which I'm sure that, you know, many people are able to do. But it just didn't give me any purpose whatsoever. And so Mm. just increasingly made me unhappy. But, you know, I would look at my children and I would see that I was able to pay the mortgage and pay the bills and do the school trips, and, and that made me happy. But it wasn't, of course, balancing that I had no purpose. Yeah. You have a two-year plan. So what happens next? I had the character, the capacity, the curiosity, and the skills. You think nurse, businesswoman, mature mother, to become a humanitarian worker. But I needed to know that my children were actually following their dreams and on their path. Mm. So my daughter was going to university And my son was very keen to go into the army. And so I wanted to see that they were really on their own track. And of course, their father was also in England and and around. But until I knew that they were earning their money or on their career path, like my daughter at university, I didn't want to leave. So that, that was a big step for me. So that's why, of course, there was that period of time when I was, let's say, getting myself ready mentally, physically, and finding really where I wanted to go. So what do you do to start making that happen? The life of a frontline worker is extreme. So would I be able to live in a community where no one spoke English, where the food was not to my liking, where the sanitation wasn't great? There's so many skills you need, adaptability and tolerance. I took myself to a very rural part of China just to see if I could actually exist in a population like that. And guess what, Jonathan? I loved it. (laughs) I loved it. I needed to use all of my senses every single second of every single day. I needed to communicate well. I needed to be very observant. I needed to learn about the things I love, the culture, 
the traditions, the superstitions, the environment, the way things operate. So the whole, I just felt 100% alive. And what I realized was that all the skills that I'd learned, because I was nearly 40 years old at this point, could blossom and really be of service. And I, that is the word, honestly, that I think that goes through my whole career is service. It's part of me. I need to be of use, of service, of benefit to uplift others' lives. It's just what I was born to do. And I really got a sense of that as soon as I was in this completely opposite and extreme environment to the one I'd come from in the UK. Where do you go next? I actually went to India next. This was where really that I started the model that I've used then going forward until today. So I had been researching um, the situation of Tibetan refugees in India, just on, as a personal piece of interest. And as I did that research, I realized that there was one key problem, that, of course, His Holiness the Dalai Lama is hugely respected around the world, and that Tibetans live in camps in, throughout India, and they're actually, they have good education and they have good support up until the age of 18. And then after that, they need to then blend in with the Indian population of 1.4 billion people. They weren't doing it well. They didn't know how to communicate. They didn't know how to get jobs. And at that point, the Tibetan refugees were turning to drugs and alcohol. They were committing suicide. They were trying to get false passports to go to leave the country, anything, because they couldn't integrate well into the Indian community. So I realized that I, there was a role that I could play, that I needed to be the bridge between these Tibetan refugees and the private sector in India. And I know that sounds really simple, but actually it was my first attempt at working with the private sector to enable great things to happen. Now, this was the smallest, tiniest drop of water, but this idea that sparked in my head then has enabled me now to work with tens of hundreds of huge companies globally to help me to solve critical issues on the front line. But it started with that moment in India. Now, equally, when I was in, in India at that time, the British embassy had the notice that Prince Charles was arriving for a visit and he wanted to visit some very interesting projects. And my name was put forward because it was very successful. And these Tibetan refugees were actually being trained in different skills. Then they were going on to get jobs and they were thriving. So Prince Charles came and spent the day with me in a refugee camp just outside of Delhi. In my passionate way, I was sharing with him that I had had my aha moment, that I knew that the private sector were the most underused resource in development work. Prince Charles replied very quickly with a big smile, and he said, Linda, you are totally right, but I have a request. 
And he said, when you inspire the private sector, they'll be so keen to help you because your idea is great. They will start to write a big fat check. And he said, leave the money on the table. Do not pick it up. The money is needed, but it's just for the moment. The real jewel is them, their business skills, entrepreneurial skills, innovation, creativity, compassion. And I made a promise to him on that day. I said, I will never just take the money. I will only take the money if the individuals, the company will engage using their most precious gifts, their time and their talent. How are you keeping them going? I only take the money if they engage themselves, okay? So they do support the projects. Right. But I don't take the money unless they engage. Then the companies really see the benefit of what they're doing because they feel it, Jonathan. Right? When you give money like we might do, you might put, you know, a pound in the pot as you're running to get your coffee at Starbucks. That feel-good factor lasts a nanosecond. You don't know where the money's going. You don't know exactly what, what will happen to it. So I engage them in such a way that they're using their intelligence and innovation to solve the problem, and then they see it implemented immediately. Now the drugs don't work. They just make you worse. And now no I'll see your face again. Now the drugs don't work. They just make you worse. But I'll... It reminds me kind of, Linda, about the whole essence and psychology and indeed philosophy of consumerism. You buy something for a quick hit. It's not very satisfying in the long term. Buy experiences, not things. Do you think that experiences are more important than possessions? Totally. You can't hold experiences. I have an iPhone, I can hold it and I can go back to it and I can see it and I can feel it. You know, we come with nothing, we go with nothing. And at the end of the day, all we have is our story. Experiences are part of our story. This is all about that emotional pull. And that's what makes us an interesting, caring, uh, fully alive person is when we actually have experiences. And often, of course, experiences encourage us to step out of our normal routine, which is our comfort zone. And that, of course, is also a jewel because then we start to learn more and more about ourselves and it gives us that great new journey. The thing you just said, you're climbing a mountain and it's a, it's a difficult mountain to climb and you keep on stumbling and indeed you hurt yourself and, and all sorts of experiences happen to you. Surely at some point, being human, you deserve to even if you don't get to the top of the mountain, but you deserve some place on that mountain where you have some type of stability. Sometimes the mundane is good as well of, you know, a roof over your head and, and things like that. Every single one of us is totally different, Jonathan. There is no public path. And the life that I lead, and as you know, I only own the contents of one suitcase. I've only had one suitcase for over 20 years. So you've only had one suitcase for over 20 years? Correct. Why? At the beginning, when I had my home, still in England, I would hear my father saying, you know, I'm cutting the grass for you, everything's great here. 
And I just knew that actually I was never going to go back to England and have a permanent base, that I needed to be able to respond and react whenever I was needed to go and not be thinking about those material possessions that could hold me back. As often as I travel, and I, as you know, I go to help after major disasters like earthquakes, tsunami, floods, cyclones, and I'm on the back of a motorbike. So I do not want to be carrying that extra pair of jeans or the extra pair of shoes. So my one suitcase went down to a very small knapsack because it's heavy, right? It weighs on your shoulders. And so I am really minimalistic. I do have some special things in my bag, always have. I always have a bit of perfume, a bit of lavender to dap on the nose so I can't smell anything unpleasant. A little bit of lipstick to cheer me up. Um, but everything else really is as as little as possible because often I have to carry it on my back. Yeah. But if, the, if your kids were to turn around to you and said, Mum, I'm going to live out of a suitcase. I'm not going to have a home. How would you feel? I think I would feel a little bit disturbed, actually, because, of course, in my society, that is normal. But equally, what I've learned over the years is that we are all different. And luckily, I know to encourage my children to do what they do. I mean, my son is in the army and he's done three tours of Afghanistan. I remember many of my friends saying to me, you know, aren't you worried about him? Why don't you try and ask him to leave? And I'm like, actually, it's his choice. You know, I do believe in that sort of, we are pulled to do different things. And, you know, his choice was to do that. So equally, I believe I would have enough love and common sense to let them say, you know, to do their own thing. Yeah. You said there was another kid, there was another child? Yes, my daughter. Yeah. So she mm -hmm. got a home and married and Whatever. Both my children have three children each with home, car. If she didn't have a home, she had a suitcase and you had the grandchildren, uh, you know, and, and they didn't have stability. They weren't at the top of the mountain. They weren't at the bottom of the mountain. They were still going round and round and round the mountain. How would you feel? I would not encourage anyone to do it until they didn't have dependence. It's it, not a good thing to do with dependence. No, not at all. No. Okay, so you're saying that this isn't something that someone should just say, to hell with it. No. I'm going to, I'm going to do a Reggie pairing, and I'm going to just leave this world and start a new world by myself no. with one suitcase. No, no, no. Not if you have dependence. I was in the situation where my children were absolutely okay, and I had my parents very well, healthy, no issues there at all. So for me to make this transition in my life was ha not having any detrimental effect on anyone. Yeah. You mentioned His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Have you ever met him? I, I was very privileged to have a one-on-one -on -one audience because he wanted to hear about my work, yeah. What did he say about your work? He got me to go and meet the Tibetan prime minister in exile to actually share the whole model so it could be rolled out throughout India. He was, he was very impressed. Fantastic. Now, in your journeys, in your experiences, you've come across some difficult, dangerous experiences. Thailand after the Asian tsunami. 
back in 2004, I was sitting at my computer in Uzbekistan where I was working. And I saw those waves 100 foot high. The death rate then was 250,000 across many countries. And all I knew I had to do was to go. I had the biggest pull ever. I didn't know anyone there, didn't know exactly where to go, but I knew I had to. I knew that I had to go to try and do whatever I could. Arriving in Phuket, I got into a taxi and I started to make my way to the worst hit area. And it was a survivor's camp of 5,000 Thai people in Ban Nam Kem. Just looking at the state of the land threw me into a massive panic. I mean, it looked like a nuclear bomb had gone off. Cars thrown on tops of houses, glass and debris everywhere. It was atrocious. It was devastating. So I stopped and said to the driver, you've got to stop. I'm losing it here. I I think I'm going to have to go back to the airport. But I got out and thought, take a deep breath. I'll be fine. And walked to the edge of the cliff. And when I looked over, the sea was full of palm fronds, cars and dead bodies. And after that, it was total collapse, heart pounding, vomiting, and then something magical happened. I saw my nursing matron in front of me, a flashback to when I was 18 years old. And she stood there and she said to me, Nurse, this is not about you. You are here to serve and contribute. You are here to make a difference. And her words took this completely overwhelming situation The light was turned off me and on to why I was there. And this is how, with all of the most dangerous and difficult situations I've been through, I've gone back to why. Why am I there? What's my purpose? And it's got me through the most terrifying moments. You've seen the best and the worst of people. But what really comes out, is it the worst or is it the best? One thing I've noticed compared to some of the larger, more developed countries is that there's a greater sense of community. So what what I often see in a developed country, and we've seen it um, even with COVID, is that people will panic, they'll go into fear, and they'll start to panic buy or go into real survival mode, right? Because they need to make sure their family are okay. You don't see that in developing countries. And that was a very big eye-opener to me. So, for example, when I arrived in Thailand after the tsunami and I went to this survivor's camp, the sense of community that we're all in this together was incredible. How people just shared their last bowl of rice or made sure that if someone had no money and no phone that had gone lost in the wave, there were other people in the community coming forward to support them. The thing with COVID is that they rely on the government to help people out with furloughs and stuff like that. But you've been in situations where there is no furlough, there is no financial support, because everyone moans in the UK about they've had to stay at home and watch television. It's been all too difficult for them. Many of the communities I work in after major disasters do not think anyone will ever help them. No one. Not the local government, not social security, no one. And so they have a very developed sense of resilience. 
Equally, what I find, because of course I am a frontline worker, that my what I decide to do and I've dedicated my last 20 years to doing is in ensuring even more resilience for these people. So my whole, all my programs are encouraging and allowing these people to have complete independence and return of self-esteem and dignity through income generating projects that they can do on their own, earn their own money, pay for the nurse, pay for the teacher and feed their children. So my model that I use on the front line is to ensure that these people are not vulnerable, that they have complete power in their own hands to take care of their own families. And this is the famous fishing rod principle, isn't it, about teaching a man to fish? Yes. I mean, I call it a hand up, not a handout. You know, with a very small amount of money, Jonathan, and with brilliant minds, and I use students and business leaders, I give them a critical issue. They compete to solve the issue through a program I run called Race for Good. All winning solutions are implemented within two days. So it's immediate. Right. And these communities, do you know how we measure success, Jonathan? We make ourselves redundant. Beautiful. We walk away. Exactly. There's no reason for us to stay. Exactly. My team are all local people. And our success is measured by making ourselves redundant. That community is thriving with their own income generating businesses. And that enables them to pay the teacher, pay the healthcare worker, and feed their children. Job done. We've got record unemployment here. Uh, and, and it's the same in many countries around the world because of COVID. It's put a, a great strain in terms of finances on the government with social security payments, and stuff like that. Returning to your principle of hand up rather than hand out, do you think there could have been a better solution than just giving handouts? It's very disempowering when you cannot have your own financial stability to take care of your own family. And you have that constant worry. And I do believe there are so many other ways. You have that peace of mind is restored when you have that power back in your own hand. If you are the recipient of this charity, is there a danger that you can rely on the charity to such an extent that it's not that you become complacent, but you just feel when that is life, you're not so inclined as perhaps you would have been, to go up rather than just uh, take it as a handout? Um, there was one time in Sri Lanka when I noticed that the survivors of the tsunami were quickly going from very needed handout when it's blankets, tents, water, medical aid. But you have to transition to hand up, otherwise they become as if they are beggars. They will just sit there and wait to be fed, wait to receive their tent and their blankets. And in an emergency, it's usually about eight weeks. And after eight weeks, you have to transition between hand out to hand up. And I remember, this is another story from the tsunami. It was when a mother came to me in the first aid tent and literally with outstretched hands said, Linda, take my baby. I can no longer feed her. And I looked back into her eyes, Jonathan, and I said, no, I will not feed your baby. But I promise you, I will enable you to feed your own baby. 
And that was when, you know, these moments in my life where things have clicked in such a massive way. And of course, what did I do? Probably have a quick panic to start with. How am I going to do this? But of course, we're never alone, Jonathan. And I have tribes and my tribe are the private sector and brilliant students. So I ran up to Bangkok, asked the British ambassador to throw a party for business leaders, and I gave them a challenge. I literally said, we've got 5,000 Thai people, uneducated, can't relocate with the gardeners, bellboys, cleaners, and they need to earn money now. The hotel industry is not being rebuilt. What can you do? What can you find out? Now, the private sector will never suggest anything that will fail, Jonathan. It's too embarrassing. Uh-huh. <laughs> They've got their PR to look after. Yeah, go on. <laughs> Well, you know, but what is great is they will look at the sustainability. And this, I believe, is something that I am, again, a bit of a guru on because I will not allow anything to touch my communities unless there's a five-year business plan around it. Even, Jonathan, if I'm spending £100, most of my income-generating projects per family cost no more than £150. It's not the millions. It's not the thousands. But what we do add to that is the research, the accountability, the timeline. It's all the intelligence that goes into creating this solution. Of course, so in Thailand, what did we do for this woman with the baby? The business leaders came to the front line. They talked to the people. They looked at the environment. They went back. A week later, they had a solution. Lining the coast where the wave hit still stood acres of rubber trees. Was rubber a viable business? 100% for the next 10 years. How much did it cost for a family, for four families to start a cooperative? £250. Within four months, they were earning three times the money they ever did in the hotel industry. It wasn't my idea. Wow. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. (laughs) When you're in a war zone, going back to people, what do you feel when you see what people could do to people? Always try and wear the moccasins of everyone. Why are they doing it? Where is their fear coming from? What is the programming they've got? I was living and working in Pakistan during one of their very worst moments, right on the Afghan border. All the bomb blasts and the death and the terrorism that was going on at that time. It was very important for me to to really understand why, why that was happening It's for all of us to start to understand why and the people that can do something about it to actually see if they can. And of course, that's not always so easy. But when you looked into the eyes of the oppressor, people carrying machine guns or whatever it might be, did you see anything from a humanitarian point of view? I felt very sad that they'd been driven to that. We are all a product of something, what we've gone through. And it was absolute deep, deep sadness. It wasn't that you spotted evil. I mean, is there evil in people? I I have never seen that. Really? No, I haven't. I've never seen evil in people because I'm in a country for a long time. I'm usually in a country for about two years and I literally eat, sleep, live with the people. I'm not back in a five-star hotel. Trust is built up. And so great conversations happen over that. And, you know, when you hear the stories and how many people have become that person with the machine gun or what have you, they have had a very difficult journey to get to where they are. So you feel sorry for them? 
there's absolutely an element of that. I would say, overridingly, it's sadness that they've been driven to that. Yes. Yeah. Mm. But equally, I'll tell you one thing that, again, is very important to me is I often see myself as a broker or a bridge. So again, with people who are in a very difficult situation or have been put into one of these unpleasant areas of their lives, it's really sitting, listening and showing another way. And I found when I was in Pakistan, the best way for me to operate was on my own as a single foreigner to go out to the communities. Of course, I would dress appropriately, put on a burqa, go in a battered up old taxi and go to the remote areas and actually show people that I was very vulnerable, but I was there for one purpose, and that was to be of service. In addition to all the amazing work that you've done, You've also had time to write some books. One is called Marmalade and Machine Guns. And another one is called Leading on the Front Line. Correct. In fact, the Richard Branson said of Leading on the Front Line, and I quote, he said, Leading on the Front Line provides invaluable insights for today's business leaders and is a must read for anyone who has a genuine desire to be the best leader that they can. Why do you think that he said it provides invaluable insights for business leaders? What has it got to do with business? I've had to face fear, find courage, create amazing teams, keep calm. And as I'm saying these words, Jonathan, all of this parallels to the business world, right? My world is very complicated. It's volatile. It's ambiguous. It's changing forever. So is the business world. And so maybe about five years ago, I started to teach something called courageous leadership. And everything I do seems to come about in a very organic way. And I was approached by a publisher. They said that the regular learning about being, you know, a, a courageous, having courageous conversations or facing your fear was being taught by people who had learnt it at a university or had studied it in a very safe and sanitized world. Now, all of my learnings has come from emotional experiences. And so when I share my story and parallel it to the business world, they remember it and they use it. Our worlds are parallel. And it has the effect because they become emotionally engaged in how they can actually have their courageous conversations and face their fear by me sharing the tools and techniques of how I do it on the front line. And you have shared these tools and techniques on other media as well, including you being a TED speaker. And what a great experience to be able to share and be on that platform and, again, have the ability uh, to inspire people to be all they can be. Yeah. The greatest thing ever, though, Jonathan, is the difference we make every single day to people around the world. That gives me the most incredible. People say to me, you know, do you take a day off? Do you have a holiday? It's like, why would I? I am every single day. I feel that I am really contributing to the happiness, joy, uplift of people globally. I, it is my passion. Fantastic. Now, Race for Good, if you want to get involved with Race for Good, what do they do? How do they get hold of you and so on and so forth? So through my website, which is lindacruz.com, 
uh, which is L-I-N-D-A-C-R-U-S-E dot com. No I in the cruise, not a sister of Tom Cruise. Um, and uh, please connect with me and we would love to have you. If you're a brilliant student, an amazing business leader, I don't mind where you are in the world. We have two Race for Goods running current at the moment, one right across the Middle East from Saudi Arabia to Qatar to Abu Dhabi to Pakistan to Dubai and right across Asia from the Philippines to Thailand to India, China and South Korea. We operate globally. So you're very, very welcome. Well, it's been an absolute delight, privilege and pleasure to speak to you, Linda. It strikes me that in that blinding moment when for two hours you couldn't see it was the one point in your life, Linda, that you saw the clearest and you actually saw that light. And it's opened up doors, avenues and all sorts of places to you. And as you said, most importantly, to the people that you have helped and the people that the students and the businesses are continuing to help through Race for Good. Well, thank you, Jonathan. I have enjoyed this immensely. And thank you for being the voice, because through your programs, you amplify what we're doing on the front line. Beautiful. Well, until next time, people, you know how to get in touch with Linda. God bless, and I'll speak to you soon. is a goodbye production if you're looking for award-winning content for your brand or want to chat about the show you can either email reinvent at me.com that's reinvent at me.com or why not visit us at www.thoughtandleaders.com that's thoughtandleaders.com <laughs>